This is Anthony in Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. This episode of In the Arena is sponsored by Sales Accelerator, the very best and most complete training for B2B sales professionals and B2B sales organizations. So listen, if you want to improve your sales results or the results of your team, I want to share a program with you that I created called Sales Accelerator. It's a training platform for salespeople, for sales managers, and for sales leaders. The training platform includes 450 individual lessons and 33 individual courses with a new course being added every week. And all of the fundamentals are covered there and including advanced concepts like level four value creation and building consensus and leading with insight, as well as prospecting and targeting and diagnosing and negotiating and closing, all very, very interactive and all actionable and practical and tactical because that's what I like to do. But I want to share with you just one of my favorite programs. It's a special program. We call it Coach. There are 100 videos in this program with more added every couple weeks. And in this course, I give you the language for every common prompt, objection, concern, and pushback that clients are going to throw at you while you're selling. So if you ever wanted to know what to say and how to say it, this program is going to give you everything you need to be able to have these kind of client conversations and to execute all the things that you'll find in a book like The Lost Art of Closing. How do you ask them for consensus? How do you ask them to invest more? All of those things are covered. So if you want B2B sales training that allows you to up your game, to become a peer and a trusted advisor, to learn the state of the art of consultative selling now, this is that program. So go visit me at b2bsalestraining.com. And if you want to make more sales even faster, let me help you accelerate the results of your team. Call me at 833-ANARINO. That's 833-426-6274. 833-426-6274. And let's accelerate your sales. I've only been to Dreamforce one time. It was 2014. I was speaking there with Mark Hunter, and I was invited to some sort of a cocktail party, which I don't tend to show up to. But in this case, I did. And it was there that I met Tiffany Bova, who was at the time with uh, Gartner, doing something there with them around insights. Tiffany is now the global customer growth and innovation evangelist at salesforce.com. And she wrote a terrific new book called Growth IQ, Get Smarter About the Choices That Will Make or Break your business. I invited Tiffany to join us here because she has a very good framework and a very, very specific lens about looking at the decisions you need to make to grow your business. Everyone wants more revenue. Everyone wants growth. But there are 10 different ways that you might pursue that. And it matters which choice you make and in which order you pursue those. This is Tiffany Bova in the arena. Hi, Tiffany. Hello, my friend. How are you? I'm wonderful. (laughs) I've been reading your book, Growth IQ, Get Smarter About the Choices That Will Make or Break Your Business. So I want to start with a couple questions about the book. 
And my experience when a person writes a book, it's because they got wrapped around the axle on some idea that you literally just can't let go of. It's consuming and you write it down and you see it everywhere. So there's something that the person has observed that they want to change in some way. So what had your attention that caused you to write Growth IQ? It really boiled down to one thing. I mean, you know, just in my history of having been a research fellow at Gartner for a decade, one of the number one questions I got was, how can we keep growing? And or sales seems to be softening. It's slowing down. We're finding it more challenging to keep um, the funnel full with, you know, really qualified leads and qualified customers. And then on the flip side of that, we're having difficulty in finding the right talent and, you know, doing all the things that we think we need to do to grow the business. And that's really why I leaned into growth instead of just sales. That's my next question for you, because I mean, the answer to growth is easy. Sell more. I mean, increase your sales and you grow. If you want to grow the size of the company, it's simple. You just have more sales. So before you deny that and give us a, a much better and more complete answer than what I was just riffing on to be playful with you here. How do you categorize this book? So here's my view. It's not a sales book, but it's a 100% a sales book for sure. It's not a strategy book, but it's definitely a strategy book. And so there's no way around it. It is so strategic in the approach that it's a strategy book. And it's not a marketing book, but it's a marketing book. I mean, it, it, the concept when you say growth is crossing so much territory how do you describe the book? And then what, what's been, we have the same publisher. So what's the reaction when you show up with a book that isn't in a clean category? Uh, it's crossing the business entity altogether. Well, I think it matches exactly what's happening in business. You know, this kind of collapse of these siloed groups that we have been trying to break down for some time between, I'm just going to pick sales, marketing and customer service as examples the gap between strategy and execution at the executive level to the field sales force, as an example, was getting bigger in my mind. The advancements around digital marketing was, in my mind, in some ways, actually making the gap between sales and marketing bigger, not smaller. And so you, Anthony, that was just a great way to say what I think as well. It's a sales book, but it's not. It's a strategy book, but it's not. It's a marketing book, but it's not. Because I really wanted it to be valuable and provide insights to everybody. If you try to hit everything, you hit nothing. So I kept it in the thread of growth. And that allowed me to really bounce between roles it allowed me to bounce between individual contributor to manager to executive, as well as size of company and region, et cetera. So hopefully it in its simplicity of its layout and the structure of the story, it was able to convey those messages I was hoping it was going to. Yeah, and I want to talk about that for a minute because I don't I, I tend not to read business books as much as I read philosophy and as much as I read psychology and as much as I read science and things like that. Because I find when you go outside so I got this book, and you guys were kind enough to send it to me. And I looked at the book, and as soon as I picked up the framework, I just want to compliment you. I don't know that somebody who doesn't have your exact experience would see what you've seen here about 10 choices that one might make to reverse slowing or declining revenue numbers. It is absolutely as simple as it can be. And so unique and so encompassing when you look at it, that the framework immediately lets you understand something 
that as a business person listening to this or a salesperson or a sales leader or a marketing leader, you haven't seen this before. So I want to take uh, a minute and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the 10 choices. But before I do that, I want you to share a little bit because you make a couple points here. First off, there's 10 strategies. No one knows that. We think you sell more. That's what you do. And how do you do that? You pick one of these things and that's the one that you get wrapped around and you go down that path. But it's more complicated than that. It's more sophisticated than that. And you have to be a lot more strategic in the choice, which is why I said this is a strategy book. And you start with an idea early in the book that I want to touch on. And it's the context, the combination and the sequence in which you choose these strategies. So if you could share just a little bit about that and help people understand that when they look at this book like I did, and I like, well, I like some of these, and I like some of them right out of the gate. It's not a menu where you're like, well, I prefer the New York strip steak over chicken under a brick or whatever it is. There's a lot of thinking that you have to do about which of these is right and what combination and when do you do what first. Can you take us through just a bit of your experience there that caused you to try to, what I'm going to call, put a disclaimer at the beginning of the book? Yeah, so that's a really great question because here's what I'd say is when I would have those meetings with customers in my previous life and now today in the last two and a half years that I've been at Salesforce, you know, I would say this. I would say that they were looking for that one answer and they'd say, oh, our competitor is doing this, so should we be doing that? Or we've done this in the past and it worked, so we're going to do it again. And I... That was where I wanted to just sort of put up that, you know, sign and say, stop for a second. Like, let's just understand the context of your market. What is happening both within your existing base, customers who look like them in your region, in your segment, in your vertical, you know, if you're in a highly regulated industry, like what are the things that are happening at the context of the market? More importantly, what is happening in other industries that you can borrow from that lends itself well to the context of your market. So I'm just going to pick Blockbuster and Netflix as an example. People are like, oh, you know, Blockbuster you know, closed its doors and all this happened because Netflix did this first. Well, had Netflix tried to stream first, it might not have worked because not everybody had access to high-speed internet at the time. <laughs> Most of the country was almost still dial-up. You can't say if they had skipped mailing DVDs. So that is absolutely a context play, like who has access to high-speed internet access, who is what, you know, sort of cities and towns are going to be launching broadband and what does that look like? In the meantime, how do we improve an experience people have at Blockbuster and make it easier for them to rent and return movies? Let's just mail them. Let's use an infrastructure that's already in place, i.e. the United States Postal Service. Like We don't have to think about anything but distribution of those films and how we're going to do that. Then once the market context starts to shift and people have high-speed internet, now let's start talking about how do we launch this in a streaming format to replace that. You might be surprised to know that there's still, I think it's 750 or 800,000 customers that still get videos in the mail. And so don't kill that because it's actually a, a great revenue generator for them. But that's that's how I play understand the context. If you just launched streaming and not everybody had access to high speed, it would have failed as well. So thinking about context and then in what order you do things has huge implications to the success of a growth path chosen. And that was the aha of the book for me. That was the aha of the framework. And that's what I really, going back to what you said earlier, Anthony, that's what I really percolated on over a couple of years of saying it just kept 
showing itself to me in questions and responses I was giving and what I was hearing from the market. Yeah, and you've got at the end of every chapter, I don't even know if it's the end of every chapter, there's stories and anecdotes and evidence as to here's a case study about the context and the combination that somebody else used and how they were thinking about it. One of my favorite exchanges I've ever seen on CNBC was Reed Hastings being interviewed early on while they were mailing DVDs and he was having a good time and the, the company Netflix was growing. And the interviewer said to him, you know, a lot of people have concerns about your business model and that at some point you're going to be disintermediated by streaming over the internet. And it was very early days. And he said, yeah, we thought of that. That's why we named the company Netflix and not DVDs by mail. And uh, it was just a great exchange. He knew where he was going and that there was going to be intermediate steps in between there. So that's just, there's the context has to be taken into consideration, but I don't think many of us do that. I think we want what we want and we say sell more, sell faster, sell harder, market more. And we do these things without really looking at it in the context, especially when we see a competitor do something. Yeah. And I say that in the book that we turn the same dials, yeah. spend more marketing money, hire more heads from a selling perspective, launch a new product, right? And you just keep turning those dials. And that's why I wanted to write a different book because the fact that that's what I was hearing. Customers were saying, we're turning those same dials. It's not giving us the same return. And so what's not correct? And so one of the paths was optimizing sales in the book. Oh, we're going to get and to that, that was, one. We're going to get yeah, to that one and, for sure. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of Really, uh, as you said, you know, just take a beat and do an inventory on the context, take the time to do it, and then maybe you may make different decisions. It's very um, intentional decision making, if you will. Well, the book's going to give you a lot of questions to ask yourself. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You're going to look at it and say, I need to look at this through a few different lenses to get there. I'm going to use three questions that are sort of long and complicated questions, but I I'm going to start closer to the back of the book than the front of the book with churn. And okay. I'm starting there for one particular reason, and it's because I get to see so many companies that spend all of their time and energy on client acquisition and so little time and energy on churn that they end up literally running in place. And it's almost like they've got a bucket with a bunch of holes in it. And they're like, well, if we pour water in faster, you know, we'll have a bucket of water. The answer, of course, is that when you have, you know, some sort of a problem with churn, you need to do something about retention. But what I'd like to, to ask you for is, can you share sort of the context and how does one think about this in a practical, tactical way where you get a look and say, this is probably going to come before anything else you can do? Because, and, and give me your experience here too, I see people skipping churn to choose some other thing that they like more than churn. Like, I don't want to worry about retention. I want to do something different. Good point. And two things I'd say here. One is that I think that many people look at churn as a defensive strategy, like something's wrong. Having a churn problem is admitting something's wrong. Something has to be wrong for customers leaving you. Now, yes, there is the natural defection of customers because they close their business or they move away or, you know, yes, there's the natural churn. Besides that, the controllable churn where you either provided a terrible service, the product didn't say, you know, do what it was uh, supposed to do, or the marketing messaging was wrong, right? Where there is things within your control. It's almost a way that some companies view that something is wrong. So let's go deal with something that's wrong. And so they'd rather deal with the shiny thing than deal with the thing that is kind of behind closed doors. Like we have this problem we don't want to talk about. 
And what I tried to do in the churn chapter was actually use it as an offensive strategy. And that's a little counterintuitive that if you can get ahead of why someone would leave, they wouldn't leave in the first place and you wouldn't have to do save campaigns, quote unquote, right? right? You wouldn't have to go out and try to save a customer or to win them back. You would have kept them to stay in the first place and you would not then end up with a churn problem. Now you can't keep all customers happy, but if you change the conversation and the dialogue to an offensive one versus a defensive one, maybe you can make some inroads into having that be more willing for people to pay attention to. But those set of that path and that set of stories is just completely tied to customer base penetration, which is one of the other paths. Right. Where if you're not paying attention to the customers that you have and you're only focused on going get, and getting net new, which tends to be one of the biggest problems I see with sales and marketers today, they get so excited about going and attracting and winning new logos and new business that, as I say in the book, you forget the gold that you already have. The example I use is if people were coming to the West to find gold and they found gold in a mountain, they don't go, that's great. We found gold in this mountain. Now let's go find it in another mountain. That's not what they said. They said, let's mine this mountain for all the gold that it has and, you know, kind of keep the beachhead and keep people away from this gold mine. And then when we've exhausted that, we're going to go to another mountain. But in sales many times uh, and marketing, really, and, and now more customer service as it gets more integrated, if you win a customer... How do you get them to buy more frequently or spend more money or buy another product? And I think people also tend to associate churn with recurring revenue or subscription kinds of businesses. And I also call out in the book that it could be you want you own a donut store in the corner, a donut shop in the corner. You just want someone to come a second time that week right. instead of buying one donut for themselves, buy a dozen for a sales meeting. So Churn is not just subscription and it's not just defensive. I came out of B2B sales where retention was a primary growth strategy for us. And specifically because in an industry where on major accounts, a national or international firm would keep an account for maybe 24 months and we kept them for 120 months, our base stayed so solid and stable that we were able to build on top of it. I think that people miss this as a primary strategy for growth. And I think it's because we do like the shiny object. I'm going to bounce around just a little bit, mostly sure. because of my curiosity and my interests. And uh, I've got your time and attention. So this is my selfish part of me. I think that a lot of successful companies think about market acceleration and the addition of new markets as the best and first and most logical strategy. And after reading your book, I confess to having a bias towards this. Expansion is always good. It always feels right. You're doing well here. Go do the same thing there. When is this the right strategy? And when should someone look at something else before they decide that the growth of new markets is the right first choice? It's a great question because I think that when we feel like it's doing well in one market, that it just naturally will do well in another market. And I'm going to go back to the beginning of this conversation around context. Is the context exactly the same in the other market? Can you literally just lift and shift everything that you were doing successfully, the way that you hire and comp your salespeople, the way you market, the messaging, the product features and functionality, the distribution facilities, the shipping, the logistics, the care, the billing, the payments, like everything can be exactly replicated. Then I'm like, okay, thumbs up. But you and I both know, Anthony, that that's not always the case. It could be there's cultural differences, there's language differences. It could be you need to translate 
instructions on how to do something or a knowledge base. You may need to set up uh, new marketing engines or new distribution facilities. And so just going out of sequence and hopping to a new market without looking at context and then saying, okay, what's the order we need to do things before we do this? I mean, how many companies in the U.S. have just said, you know what, we've done really well in the U.S. We're just going to lift and shift it to emerging markets, to the BRIC countries. Let's back up five, seven, eight years, right? So Brazil, Russia, India, China, we're just going to lift and shift and drop it into the BRIC countries. And how many are still there and doing well? Some of our largest U.S. companies have not succeeded outside the U.S. I know some of them, and you do too. What's interesting to me about that is the kind of effort and energy that it takes to penetrate a new market, in my experience, both doing it in my own businesses, is far greater than simply saying, we're just going to put people in to execute the same thing we're doing here. Correct. It seems much, much more difficult than I think people give it credit to actually getting a foothold in the market at all. And I think that that's why we've seen some very large companies go into, you know, Brazil and other, other countries like that. I, my experience has been a lot with the South America. It just isn't very easy to start grabbing market share, even if you're doing a great job here and even if you're dominating. It just feels easy, but it turns out that it's not that easy. And I think that that's why I started with context, you know, and also looking at where others, maybe similar to your company, has gone into a new market and not been successful. Why was that? Was it because they weren't culturally sensitive? Was it because the product wasn't adjusted to meet standards of a particular country? Did you not have the right partnerships and channels and sales engines in place before you launched? or even support facilities that could take calls, you know, in off hours outside of the United States. There's lots of examples of why it doesn't work. And instead of going, well, I know it's going to work for us because it's worked here. And then I also like to say that there's a lot more market in the U.S. to have before you think you want to go internationally, unless you've got a product that is easily translatable in that way. And e-commerce allows you to, to make the borders invisible and you can sell externally outside the U.S. or outside your home country, wherever you might be listening to this, then I'm all for it. But I still think there's lots of growth to be had or in your home vertical before you start to try to figure out how do I go out and do more. Yeah, I, in my experience, I've had markets fail in family businesses, specifically with the wrong leadership. And it took some time before I recognized that the person that could go into a new market, I mean, essentially what we do with them is we give them a machete and we drop them down in a, a rainforest and say, okay, now carve a path here by yourself with a single blade, you know, and it's so much effort and energy. It's a certain kind of personality and a certain sort of... uh ethos that you have to have that that you have a bunch of people who are willing to just go out and do the heaviest of all heavy lifting building a market and just getting that one first decision wrong on the leader can stall your growth for a long time it's a just a different yeah. endeavor yeah and i would say that one of the examples i give in the book and that was a great analogy you just gave because it matches my example perfectly is that you drop them into the rainforest with a with a single machete and they start just carving the path where the example I give in the book is if you and I were going to do that and we only had, you know, we had to cut down who's going to cut down more trees in six hours and you were given a blade and I was given a blade, what would you do? And in that example you just gave, it would have been, I just start chopping trees. But the right answer is to sharpen the blade, right? Going back to knowing the context, drop them in so they can learn the context. Like what are the distribution channels? What are the sales, the go to market and preference channels for buyers? Who are our buyers? 
let's do some research. And I don't mean benchmarking the competition. I mean, looking at like customers that you have in whatever market or country or vertical you're in today and say, can I go find that? And the answer may be, I've been here 90, 120 days. It's not a good market for us. And that's okay. Yeah. It's better than going and trying to, to fake it until you make it. For and five then you more waste. Years. Yeah. yeah, for five more years. And, and most companies are small businesses and they can't afford those kinds of mistakes. So that's why I think growth IQ is really about thinking about things differently. The mental model that you have to use in order to approach growth needs to be different than it's been in the past. All right, I'm going into my last question here. This is a tough one. So finally, we have to talk about optimized sales because that's a world that you and I both know very well. And this seems to be the choice du jour right now for everyone, especially because there's, the, in, in my opinion, there's so much technology, there's so much enablement in the way of choices and things available, there's so much development available. But to me, I think that some of this just looks to me like a certain kind of tailorism, which is, is looking and saying, I'm going to put efficiency before effectiveness. And I'm talking about things like the optimization of saying, I'm going to have an SDR, a BDR, an AE, an AM, a SME, a CRM now that when I look at a lot of CRMs, and you know more than I do here, but it's essentially an ERP. And what we're asking salespeople to do with it has changed so dramatically, it may not be as much about relationship in my mind as it should be. And we're spending time and money, I think, slicing customer journey and sales processes into finer and finer slices. And it, it looks like all the effort to optimize is is still not producing the kind of results that people think. So I want to talk first about just optimization generally, and then context for right or wrong choice here. Yeah, so I look at it slightly different. At least I haven't heard others sort of approach it this way. But I've been saying this for some time, which the sales process to me, is very different than the buyer journey. Those are two very different things. And the only time they meet in my mind is at the time of sale. So if you are constantly optimizing sales process so that you can internally ensure productivity and who's handling what and handoffs and BDR and SDR and ABM and all that stuff, that's all internal. A customer does not say, I'm talking to an SDM. Or this was an ABM campaign that they reached out to me. That, that is all internal stuff, right? That's just not what they say. The buyer's journey, by the way, does not align to the sales process. The sales process still tends to be very rigid and very formal. Linear. So that you know what phase they are in the quote unquote, big air quotes, funnel and where they fall in the segmentation triangle, which by the way, I call the Bermuda triangle of segmentation, because customers don't view themselves that way either. So both of those things to me are very internally focused. I think both in, in my addition to that, uh, Tiffany, is I, I think you're right. And I think we look at both of them as linear. We look at right. the sales process as linear and the buying journey as linear. And the buying right. journey with 12 people making a decision together is anything but linear now. Correct. It's very fluid. So that goes, that validates exactly what I was just saying, Anthony, right? That the buying journey is very different than the sales process. Sales process, very linear, very structured and getting, as you said, to use your terms, right? Much more finite and slicing those steps, doing it in such a way that it's almost kind of losing its impact. But the whole concept of optimizing is 
going back to what we were just saying about those dials, right? You're going to dial it more marketing. You're going to hire more salespeople. That's what always has always happened versus saying, hold on a second. If I can just improve performance, let's just call it quota attainment. I mean, there's research out of Miller Hyman now CSO group, right? Where you're still at the low 50% is achieving quota. It's never now, gotten yes, better. In, it's I never mean, gotten better. No. And so you can argue, you know, having been a sales rep and a sales manager and a sales leader, you know, I've had quotas set for me where I knew I wasn't going to hit them. It was a ridiculous quota. So there's some of that, right? Which is, look, you've set me up to fail on day one of the quarter. <laughs> okay. So for all the salespeople listening, yes, I know there are some times where the quota is set that it's unrealistic. Put that aside for a second, especially if, you know, with no disrespect meant, you're using it as an excuse. If you think you can go get it, then what do you need to be more effective? And we're still spending, out of Salesforce research, we're still spending in the high 50% range (laughs) in non-selling activities. So now you have a percentage of time in non-selling activities and a majority of people not hitting quota. So that's why I think optimizing is, are you using all the resources you have today in the most efficient and effective way? And I think having nine different kinds of sellers, you know, sales development ramp, outbound, inbound, hunter, farmer, whatever, that may not be making you more effective. So once again, going back to what are the tools that you have in place? I like to say that from a Salesforce perspective, that we don't really sell technology, we sell change and change is difficult. And for sellers that have been selling for a really long time, we're wedded in our behaviors and it's hard to change our behavior because it's always worked for us. But remember, the whole purpose of this book was the market is not the same as it used to be. So we can't possibly say that if our customers are totally different, like you just said, Anthony, there's 12 buyers. It's not linear. It's very fluid. You know, all of these things are going on, but we tend to try to sell process wise the same way. Yeah. We start on the left side of the PowerPoint with uh, target and we end with win loss on the other end. And we try to go through those as if the buyer is, is tracking and they're anything but tracking. I like your comments too on the slicing. You know, the, the person that gets handed off from an SDR to an AE doesn't say, I had such a great experience from that SDR being qualified that I can't wait to talk to this next person. And I, I hear reps complain all the time, why don't they show up for that meeting? Because that wasn't the value that they were looking for. Being qualified wasn't why they, they're engaged with you. They're trying to understand how to create better results in their business. And when this first person only gets to do this much of it, and the handoff is weird and clunky, the buyer's having a certain experience of their journey saying, these people aren't trying to help me with what I'm trying to do. And I think the uh, the optimization is, you know, looking at this and saying, how do we enable people to help the the client decide to change and then decide how it's best to change and then why we might be the right partner to do that kind of thing. But I think we work on slicing instead of increasing the effectiveness of the people. And the optimization for me is everything but increasing the effectiveness of the people. It tends to be technology or, or role clarity and lots of other things other than what would really help them be more effective is to have a better approach to handling value creation and helping a customer with a decision-making path. Yeah. And that's why I said at the beginning of this podcast, when I said, I worry that the advancements in the digital marketing side has actually made the gap between sales and marketing get bigger. I agree with this that. exact conversation. And what I mean by that is a lot of the slicing and dicing has everything to do with who controls what, number one. Number two, what is the metric to control that so that I can 
validate the spend I'm making or my worth as a leader or, you know, the reason we have this team or whatever it might be. Right. So, you know, metrics can actually drive a wedge between groups because everyone's fighting for proof. And the metrics that are very productivity driven that we've had going back to the sales process, how many calls did you make? How many leads did you follow up on? What was the score of the lead? Like, you know, how's the funnel? What's progressing? What like that same conversation is missing this whole attribute, which was a key theme in the book around the customer, right? And and the experience that they have. So going back to that handoff, you know, for me, if you do things like what's the net promoter score, the CSAT score, or what tying a sales rep to lifetime value or churn rates and starting to get creative with the way in which you tie compensation and productivity, uh, as well as the optimizing of those sales teams closer to the customer versus just ways to sort of prove relevance and validate budget and why you need more headcount. If it flips itself to say, is it really serving the customer? So to your point, the handoff is clunky. So why are we handing off? What's the reason we're handing off? If we're handing off just so that we can show that the, you know, account-based marketing efforts or the sales development reps are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing, that's not benefiting the customer. So let's kill the handoff. Let's let this person handle all things. Oh, but then we can't track, you know, the leads that we're generating or the marketing we're spending in this particular category. Find another way. Technology has advanced so significantly, whether it's us or someone else, we can tell you what's going on. So do you need a human to tell you what's going on? I think that that's where, you know, using technology as an enabler Only if you're willing to actually change the people and process side of the business. And those three things are the winning combination for me. It's a great, great answer. I want to compliment you on your book. It's outstanding. I'm not only impressed with the framework. I think for people that go out and buy this book and read it, the case studies are worth the price of the book by themselves. And just reading the case studies... If you don't know what the context is and you don't know the combination or the sequence, the case studies for me give you a way to look at the context. And I promise you, if you're a leader and you're listening to this, after you read the book, you're going to start asking yourself very, very different questions. At least that's what's happened for me is I'm asking myself different questions about why and in what order and what makes sense. And uh, Tiffany, I just want to congratulate you. It's a great, great book. Thank you. Where do we send people to find out more about you? They can follow me on social media. So I'm at... Tiffany underscore Bova, and they can follow me on LinkedIn as well. You can get the book really everywhere at this point, whether you like to purchase on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Target or Walmart or 800 CEO reads, got your choice of where you can get it. It's also in the Kindle version and the audio book, which that was a whole experience for me. I did my own (laughs) recording of the book. I've done it twice and I'm getting ready to do it a third time. Not easy, is it? Yeah, well, I can now honestly sit in front of someone and say, I have actually read my book out <laughs> yes. loud, cover to cover. <laughs> so it is I not guess easy. That's a good thing. I know it's, an, and they, I've done two one that was you know, five hours and one that's six. And then they said, This next one's over seven. It's just a lot of time to do that work. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's great catching up with you. Oh, thank you for having me. And thank you for such kind words on the book. I really do appreciate it. It means a lot coming from you. I insist that you go pick up Growth IQ, Get Smarter About the Choices That Will Make or Break Your Business by Tiffany Bova, and go visit Tiffany at TiffanyBova.com. That's T-I-F-F-A-N-I-B-O-V-A.com, Tiffany Bova.
My name is Anthony Anarino, and you can find me at thesalesblog.com. You can also find me at anarino.com. Both of those addresses will take you to the same place where you will be accosted by a pop-up banner asking you to sign up for my Sunday newsletter, the best work I produce every week, bar none. It shows up in your inbox on Sunday morning with a big idea that's practical and tactical and actionable so you can hit the ground running on Monday morning. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino, where you can see my everyday program where you'll find content just like the blog, something that you can think about, something you can put to work right away. If you find this podcast valuable, please subscribe. That helps me tremendously and share it with your peers and your friends and other people that work in sales or management or leadership or who are success minded. Also, it would help me tremendously to spread the word if you would leave me a review. If you like this, give me your notes. Love to see those. We read every single one of them. If you're interested in more more content, you can go to amazon.com and search my last name, Anarino. You'll find three books, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, a sort of unfortunate title for a first book, followed by The Lost Art of Closing, Winning the Ten Commitments That Drive Sales. And on October 16th this year, we will release the third book called Eat Their Lunch, Winning Customers Away from Your Competitors. That will be the third book in as many years. Thanks for joining me here. And until next time, I'll see you in the arena. What follows here is a true story. A few years ago, I was sitting in a sales conference waiting for my turn to speak. And as I was catching up on things, I noticed an advertisement on Facebook for HubSpot's inbound conference. And at the time, I was immediately struck by the idea that while inbound is important, outbound is even more important. It's the difference between passively waiting and actively pursuing your goals and your dreams and the clients that you need to acquire. I walked out into the hall and I called my friend Jeb Blunt and I said, I have this idea. We're going to put on a conference called Outbound. And he said, that's the best idea you ever had. And I argued that it probably isn't the best idea I ever had, but it was a good idea. So we got Mike Weinberg and Mark Hunter on a phone call. Then the four of us committed to establishing our own conference, naturally naming it Outbound. In 2017, With about 12 weeks to plan and pull off the event, we had 400 people show up to the first event in Atlanta. Last year in 2018, we had a little longer period of time to set up for the event. We had 600 people show up, a growth of 50%. So why are people showing up in Atlanta to Outbound? Because they want to know how to prospect more effectively. Because they need to know how to build a pipeline now and because they want to be more productive with the time and the energy they have to go out and win new clients and grow their sales and make more money and take care of their people. So I'm inviting you to join me and Jeb Blunt and Mark Hunter and Mike Weinberg at the World Congress Center's Georgia Ballroom in Atlanta, Georgia on April 23rd to April 26th. This will be the very best sales conference you've ever attended, and you're going to get the practical, tactical development you need to be able to prospect more effectively, build your pipeline, and be more productive. You're also going to believe that you're at a rock concert, and you're going to have the very best time you've ever had, and this is truly an event like no other. Tickets are on pre-sale now, so I want you to go to outbound.ticketspice.com forward slash outbound hyphen 2019 to get tickets for you and your team. There are pre-sale tickets. They're super cheap for two days. You have to go get them right now while they're still up. That's outbound.ticketspice.com forward slash outbound hyphen 2019. That's where you go to get tickets. And listen, do this right now because when April comes around, you don't want to see all of your friends at Outbound posting everything that they're learning and the great time that they're having on social media while you're sitting at home. Go do this right now and I'll see you in Atlanta in April 2019. 
This episode of In the Arena is sponsored by me, Anthony Anarino, and the Outcomes Planner. I want to take a minute and share some information about my new planner with you. We call it B2B Sales Toolkit, and you can find it at b2bsalestoolkit.com. This is a planner that I designed for salespeople, and it's based on my own personal productivity strategies. If you ever wonder how I get so much done, you're going to find the answer at b2bsalestoolkit.com. The planner is made up of three parts. So the main planner is a hardcover book, and it's a place for you to capture your goals, your disciplines, your appointments, and your sales statistics, and a bunch of other features. We call that big planner outcomes, because that's what productivity is. It's generating outcomes. And a lot of you listening to this may feel overwhelmed because you're busy, which is not the same thing as being productive. In fact, these two ideas are polar opposites. The second book you're going to find in the toolkit is called Outbound, and it's a place where you design and keep your pursuit plans for your dream clients. Those clients that are strategic enough, they're custom made for your value prop, and you're going to have to pursue them over a some long period of time to be able to pull them away from your competitor. This is the only planner you're going to find that addresses winning your dream clients and making your number. There's nothing else on the market. We looked at every single thing. It's not designed for salespeople, but this is. The last piece is a tear sheet tablet that we call 90-Minute Blocks. And this piece is designed for you to sit down and very thoughtfully and intentionally decide what you're going to do with three 90-minute blocks each day for your most important outcomes and to plan that work. So this means what we're going to help you do is give yourself four and a half hours in proactive mode and three and a half hours in reactive responsive mode where you can still deal with the demands of your company, the demands of your clients, and all the other things that are going to interrupt you while you're trying to do your work. So go to B2B Sales Toolkit right now to check it out and subscribe to the program. When you sign up, you're going to get access to a 16-video course where I walk you through the planner and how to use it to create the greatest success for you and for your people. And then you're going to get an invitation to join us in a private Facebook group so you can share your success and so we can come on and give you live coaching. Go check out the planner at B2BSalesToolkit.com. Increase your productivity and I'll see you inside once you're in the Facebook group. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.